So it's the um, end of our second full day together, in case you've lost track of time. And some of us are still landing at the retreat, and that's okay, it's normal. We're just settling into our bodies with our breath. Maybe the mind is getting calmer a little bit and the sleepiness that often plagues us on the first day, maybe it's abating a little bit. Kind of the terrain of doing retreats, what happens. And maybe for some, the planning mind is starting to quiet a little bit. And if not, we'll talk about it. Maybe there's an emotion underneath. Actually, let's just talk about that one now since I brought it up. Why well, leave it for later? So, so if you are finding repetitive thinking as you're here, you know, and if just bowing to it and saying not now doesn't quite work, um, and sometimes it's helpful to see if there is if these thoughts are like similar widgets, they're all look kind of the same. And instead of saying not now, not now to every single widget of thought that's coming, it's best to go to the widget factory down the road, which usually happens to be an emotion that's creating these thoughts. There might be an unsettled emotion in there somewhere that's creating these habitual thoughts. So at, the time, at that time, we actually sit with the emotion, what's going on? Can we sit with this? Can we work with this? Can perhaps using the, using RAIN, R-A-I-N, recognize the emotion, allow the emotion to be, it's energy in motion, allow it to be, allow it to move through, make space for it. I investigate in the body, what does this feel like in the body, this emotion? tightness, reverberation, what is it? Not so much heady, why am I feeling this? What happened in my childhood? Who's responsible? Not that kind of investigation. But how is this felt in the body? Investigate. And N for RAIN, R-A-I-N, is for non-identify. It's an emotion. It's just fear. It's just sadness. It's moving through. Anyone who would have, who would have gone through what I've gone through with my conditioning background would be feeling the same emotion. It's just an emotion, not so much my emotion. It's an emotion. It's moving through, giving it space, not identification. And also with the not now, if, if there is some plan, some future plan that's, that keeps coming up for you, I like what Einstein said, that we can't solve our problems with the same mind that created them. So if you settle, if you allow yourself to be here, there will be a different mind after the retreat, and we'll look at whatever issue is coming up in a very different way, in a novel way.
So this afternoon, we uh, wrote our own obituaries, and that brought up some things for 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 people, for folks. And we're landing more and more into the into the death field, into appreciating, into this reflection, contemplation of impermanence, this ultimate impermanence. There's so many flavors of impermanence, anicca, and this particular one, death. There's so many flavors of anicca, there are losses, so many losses that we go through in our lives. They're all different kinds of death. We move, we lose our friends, the community, there's divorce, there's days and there are nights. There's time passing. There's Nietzsche in general. In Nietzsche, every moment, impermanence. Everything passes every single moment. In fact, by the time I get to the end of the sentence, the moment would have arisen and passed, that beginning of sentence, that's gone. Gone. This moment too. That moment is now gone. By the, you see, it just, it's impermanence every single moment of our lives. Every single moment. And we can tune into that also. Every moment there is an arising and every moment there is a death. And it never comes back. It's happening right now. It's so intimate, it's not heady, it's right here. As I open my mouth, that moment is gone. (sighs) Impermanence. So the practice of impermanence, of contemplating impermanence, little impermanences or big impermanences. It's intimate, it's right here. It's not elsewhere. One of my favorite authors years ago, <clears throat> Milan Kundera wrote, had written this book that I love the title. It said, life is elsewhere. Life is elsewhere. And sometimes we feel that way, like practice is elsewhere. It's what other people are doing. It's not what I'm doing right now. I'm just sad, or I just can't get get concentrated because I'm really agitated. I'm not practicing. Practicing is elsewhere, something else. No, whatever is happening, arising for you, happening for you, that is your opening. Your dukkha is your path. Whatever is happening for you, Your dukkha, your flavor of dukkha is your path. It's so personal. And that can show up in, as veils. And actually it's like these, the path of our practice can be veiled from us. We can just see that, oh, this is not practice. We take the veil off. This is the path. And actually the word, Veil, nivarana, is a translation of the word hindrances. 
And for many of you who've been practicing for a while, you are familiar with the concept of the five hindrances. How many people are familiar with the concept of the five hindrances? Yeah. And usually around the second night at the retreat, we talk about the five hindrances because they've already come up in full force, so it's time to give them a nod. And what I love, so I'll talk a little about them, the word Nivarana in, in Pali actually is translated as veil. You know, hindrance seems like it's a hindrance. Oh, what a drag, I've got a hindrance. Whereas a veil, it's like, oh, it's a veil. It's actually, oh, it's just a veil. If I, oh, here's the path. It's actually, the path is right behind the veil. Don't look elsewhere. Don't look behind door number three. It's right behind the veil of whatever's coming up for you. And the veils, the first one is traditionally thought of sensual desire, taught as sensual desire. It's just basically, and and also I'll talk about these veils as how they relate to maranasati, death contemplation practice. So sensual desire could show up as, ah, This is such a drag. It's so much more fun to think about the vacation I had in Hawaii or just anything else but death contemplation. Anything else. Lunch, oh, that was so good. I wonder what's going to be for dinner. Right? Sensual desire. It's a lot more pleasant. So the mind going to what is pleasant, 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 pleasant and not staying with. So... And, and it also could show up in different ways, in ways of, oh, I'm so jealous of those who are at peace with their death. I'm not at peace with my death. I'm, I'm you know, scared of it. I'm afraid of it. And oh, that's what I want. I want, I want, I want. It's kind of wanting. It's a wanting mind that shows up. Or I've, I've heard the other way around from some people, like, what's wrong with me? I don't feel grief. Death is okay with me. What's wrong with me? I want to feel grief. I want to feel sad. Like, whatever it is, wanting something else. So seeing, seeing what's under, what's under it. If, if that desire, if that sensual desire, or if that wanting wasn't here, if it weren't here right now, what would be here right now? So ask yourself that, if that happens to come up for you. What would be here if this wasn't here right now? If I wasn't... Jealous of those of other people who are at peace. What would be here right now? What would I be sitting with? Okay. The second veil, ill will. It's also another, I also like to think of it as pushing away ill will, kind of, both ill will energy as well as pushing something away. And here it can show up in so many different ways. It can show up as anger. I don't want to die. Or angry at people who are at peace at dying. Or angry at people who are dying. The fact that I'm going to die, other people die. Anger at death, at this impermanence thing. Why is the world set up this way? Fear, being afraid, sadness, grief, despair, 
or avoidance altogether. And none of these are abnormal. There's nothing wrong with any of these. Nothing wrong with any. These are all natural, normal reactions to death. It's okay. We're here to sit with them. Nothing wrong with any of these. If they're experienced, they are the path. So trusting, trusting your experience. Be exactly where you are with whatever might be coming up for you. That that is your doorway. Your flavor of dukkha is your doorway. The pushing away can also show up as avoidance, as I mentioned. I don't want to do this. The mind going elsewhere. I don't want to do this. Mm. I did sign up for this death contemplation thing, but mm, I don't know. Rather watch the birds. And to say there there might be times that watching the birds might be actually wise if if whoa, you just went through holding a lot of grief and sadness and now it's time to Get resourced, titrate a little bit. It doesn't have to be full on all the time either. So use your wisdom. Use your wisdom. There might be times to just sit, sitting in nature is actually wise and listening to the birds. Okay, okay, it's okay, it's okay. And then when you're resourced, when there is more space, when there is more stability and space in the heart, then you can open up more to the sadness, to the grief to whatever is arising for you. The third veil is is sloth and torpor, which is the mind all of a sudden, even though you're not really sleep deprived and you've got enough sleep and it's all good, the mind completely checks out. It's just sleepy. And you go to your room, you lie down, nope, you don't fall asleep. It's just, when I start to do this death contemplation thing, all of a sudden I get really sleepy. Hmm. If that's the case, I would be curious about that. Oh, what is happening? It's another, it's another way the mind is avoiding, perhaps. And be gentle with it, of course. Not like, well, mind, I'm going to beat you until you submit. No, okay, sleepiness, how do I work with you? How can I be with you? How can I work with you? Maybe I, maybe I do standing meditation. Stand up exactly where you are. Standing meditation is just as wonderful as sitting meditation. In fact, I usually encourage people sitting in the front rows in the afternoon sit, especially, or any sit, if you feel sleepy. If you get up, the rest of the people will feel encouraged. Sometimes, actually, I even stand up up here when I'm sitting, so that people see it's okay to do standing meditation. There's no shame in standing. It's just one of the four postures the Buddha taught. That's fine. So stand up if, if there is sleepiness. Open your eyes a little bit. Let energy in. Let energy in. And also you can be curious about the sleepiness. Oh, what is happening? Ah, bring mindfulness to it. Be very curious. And, in, and it's so interesting to be curious about the hypnagogic state. 
as the images come and as things stop making sense and it's weird, when you, you can really, really, really track it with mindfulness. It's pretty awesome, actually. I've done this practice a lot. You can be aware until the moment, ah, you fall asleep for a few seconds. And in a few seconds, you wake up feeling very refreshed instead of just fighting it, fighting it, fighting it, fighting it, fighting it. Instead, you can be clear and mindful about the whole process. I'm curious, how many people um, have experienced standing meditation? Great. Yeah, so you guys, you get to stand up in the hall and encourage other people to do it. Restlessness and remorse, the fourth veil. And restlessness and worry, also it's translated as, it can show up as this nervous energy, anxious, nervous energy, as if you're about to jump out of your skin. It's just, it's, oh, it's it's too much. So ways to work with that. Again, don't, well, especially for this one, for restlessness, you don't want to confine it. You don't want to put restlessness under a microscope. You want to give it a lot of space, like a wild ram or a wild horse. If you put it in a cage, like restlessness, stop now. It won't work. It will drive you crazy. You give it a lot of space. You let the restlessness wild horse have a wide, wide pasture. And it can, it might transform. Many different things can happen. One is that it can still be there, but when it's not confined, when there's a lot of space for it, tends to settle down so it can still be there while other things are present. Oh yeah, okay, that's okay. I can still do this contemplation while there's restlessness. That's okay. It doesn't have the reins anymore at that point. It doesn't have all the power. It's also sometimes it can be interesting in this particular practice to to reflect or drop in the question, what's underneath? What's underneath? If this restlessness wasn't here, what would be here instead? Oh, maybe it's avoidance. Maybe it's grief. Maybe it's sadness. Because that is so uncomfortable to be with that this bubbly feeling is keeping me on on the top so so I don't get to it. Like, oh, that's what's happening. Can I be with the grief? Is it okay? Is it okay to just sit with the sadness and the grief? Is that okay? So seeing what is under the restlessness. And the fifth one, doubt. Doubt can be a tricky one because doubting mind can masquerade as discerning wisdom. And doubt can be about anything. Doubt can be about the teachings. Is this the right thing? Is it, it could be about the teachers. Do they know what they're talking about? Could be about myself. I don't, am I doing this right? I'm not doing this right. This is not the right retreat for me. Like doubt, 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 doubt about anything. 
It's just the energy of doubt. So one recommendation for that is, one is trust, trust your practice, trust yourself. And if for you the, the, the thought comes up, I'm not doing this right, or this is not for me, it's just a thought. So let, let there be another thought, I am doing this right. Yes, I am doing this right. I am doing this right. And see what happens. And also, in order to distinguish the energy of doubt from discerning wisdom, energy of doubt tends to be a little gnawing, like, it's kind of how it feels in the body. It feels a little, kind of takes your energy away. It's kind of doubting. Um, Whereas discerning wisdom, there is a sense of rightness about it. There's a sense of clarity. And it doesn't so much come from the head. It's not heady. And again, doubt tends to be one of the more complicated ones to work with. So with whatever arises, whatever veil or whatever emotion arises, to be exactly where you are, you don't have to be elsewhere. Practice is not elsewhere, is exactly what is being presented to you on your plate. And make room, can I be with this? Can I be with this? What's underneath, can I be with this? Make space and trust your experience as your personal guide. And sometimes, especially with strong emotions, as part of this practice, it can feel like a roller coaster as we make room for them. It can feel like a roller coaster that we get on, like, oh, grief, as if it would never end. And titrate, it's wise to titrate, it's wise to to make space for it, to make some space. And if it gets overwhelming, then pull back a little bit. It's okay to pull back and then get resourced. Just either sit with your breath, sit with your body, or if it's too overwhelming, sit with the birds. Because it's not wise to, to push yourself in this contemplation to the point of complete overwhelm. Some level of existential terror will come up and you, and that is healthy as much as you can hold it and work with it. You know your own capacity. And that capacity as you titrate, as you hold it, pull back, you hold some more, pull back, you hold some more, it continues to expand and expand and expand. So there is a wisdom of titration, of gentleness, and yet not completely turning away altogether. There is a fierceness of courage to be with it and the gentleness to know how to titrate. So both of those. And some people might actually be on the side of, whoa, gentleness, okay, too much. Or like, I'm going to sit with this grief until it kills me. Neither of those are wise. Something in the middle. Just play your way. And it's okay to go a little too much and then too little. Like, you know, you're finding your way. And that's okay too. We don't get it perfect. And it's fine. It's fine. 
find our way through this practice. When I mention in terms of also reactions that can come up as you sit with, with them, I want to name a few more things before moving on. And that is from the work of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Five Stages of Grief, because those are the things that you might, you might experience on this retreat. For yourself, for your grieving for your own loss, or grieving for other people. And some of you are quite familiar with these as you're in the caring professions. The first one is denial, denying. The second one is anger, as we've talked about. Anger, and it can seem endless. You can be angry at yourself, as in the case of someone dying at, at the doctors, friends, the person who has died, why did you die and leave me? There could be, you know, energy of anger. There can be bargaining. The third one is bargaining. Only if, what if, only if I had discovered the tumor sooner. Only if I had, only if I had, only if. And guilt is often part of the bargaining companion. Only if I eat vegetables, if I turn vegetarian and if I exercise two hours a day, maybe I won't die. Only if, maybe, bargaining. In fact, this is not a joke. The The title of the book is How Not to Die. If we found it in the in the teacher's office, we thought, at first, we thought it was a joke. We thought it's one. You know, have you seen these books that they have? There's an intriguing title, and then you open the book, and all the pages are blank. <laughs> there is there's another book like that there, in the office, and on the cover it says "Why Trump," and all the anyway, <laughs> and all the pages are blank. But anyway, so we thought this might be a a joke book too, and if we picked it up, no, it's actually a serious book, How Not to Die. <laughs> that's, that's our culture. That's our culture. Bargaining, back to bargaining. The fourth stage, depression. And, and again, these are specifically the, um, the stages of grief, usually for others, but you can also feel them for yourself. And the depression sometimes can feel as if it will last forever, the sadness. And the fifth stage of the five stages is acceptance, that, you know, it cannot be any other way. It is what it is. It, it cannot be any other way. It cannot be any other way. And to say that, that death, you know, there's, as somebody was saying, commenting a couple of days ago, as we do these practices, we open up to so many different flavors of death and ways of dying and holding death and relationship to death. And then the case of suicide or violent death. 
It has the above ingredients that I mentioned, but probably a lot more intense, a lot more anger, more confusion. And in the case of suicide, especially, sometimes it's very hard to accept. There's a lot of anger. So maybe the place to start there is accept that you're not accepting. Accept that you're not accepting, that, this, that you're angry, accept, accept that. So what that means is, and that acceptance is really the word, a better word for it is allowing. You're allowing the truth of the moment is, I'm angry, I don't like this, I don't accept this, why did this happen? <sighs> can I sit with this? Yeah, it's hard, but I can sit with this. I can allow this to be the truth of how I'm feeling right now, what's passing through. And of course, judgments with, with these emotions, judgments can come up. I should be more this, I should be more that. Aren't I over it by now? I should be more accepting, I should be more at peace, should, should, should. Listen to those shoulds as they come up. It's not very helpful. Really appreciated someone this afternoon, the reflection when they wrote their um, obituary to have noticed that, oh, you know, all the judgments are extra. Judgments are extra. No need for the judgments. And to hear them. And to hold wherever you are, whatever is coming up for you, with compassion. This is exactly where you are. This is your individual path. And to trust that. I wanted to switch gears now and talk a little bit <clears throat> more personally about my own <clears throat> practice of death contemplation and, <clears throat> and share you know, why, why am I here? And actually that's a, question, a good question for all of you if you haven't asked yourself, why are you here? Why are you here? So, I've been drawn to death contemplation, actually, or, or death contemplation in a way has done me instead of me having done it through various events of my life. And, and both formal and informal practice. So in terms of formal practice, I've done a lot of practicing. Some practices we'll, we'll be sharing with you as we get deeper and deeper um, one formal practice is this could be my last breath. This could be my last in-breath. This could be my last out-breath. And there are ways to work with that, which we'll tell you. And, I've, and that was my practice for, for a while. That was my home practice for a while. Another practice I did as a home practice was um, lying in bed at night. I would think, you know, I may not wake up in the morning. This might be it. Goodbye, world. So it's another formal practice. And, and I guess in terms of the formal practice, the, the, how I started to do the formal practice, I'll tell you about the informal practice. 
in a moment, but the formal practice, um, years ago, um, when I was relatively new in my practice, and I was practicing very intensely and intently and seriously, and and um, you know, there's the saying that Buddha has said, practice as if your hair is on fire. And I was practicing as if my hair was on fire with so much urgency, like having practice meetings every other day. It was just too long. I could have had two of them per day, which is so... Anyway, <clears throat> so... And then my practice, um, at some point, um, it is not unusual for practice sometimes to get into an area that, that sometimes is called um, dark night. Actually, this is borrowed from the Christian tradition, John of the Cross. But um, So my practice has gotten into a dark night space, which, which is not unusual, and it can happen, and there are ways to to work through it, it actually can be a, it is a natural part of the practice of letting go. However, for me, it had gotten off the rails a little bit and it had gone into nihilism. Emptiness realizations for me had gone into nihilism a little bit. What's the point of it all? So I remember a teacher many years ago on a retreat when I was sharing this and this teacher told me, Oh, yeah, I've been there, been there, done that, of course. And he told me, you know, you should do death contemplation practice. And for a moment I thought, what? I mean, it's already pretty dark. Are you fighting darkness with darkness? Um, I think the idea they had was um, that death contemplation can bring up such a sense of urgency that this life is precious and short, um, that it can bring one out of that state. So that's when I took on the formal practice of death contemplation. And I'm here, it worked, it all, everything balanced out and I got out of that, that state. <clears throat> but yet it was really, a, a, the practice took a life of its own. And, and I have to say this is something also I, I've been attracted to ever since I was a, I was a kid. Um, when I was a kid, 12 years old, there was, I, there was an experience where I thought, this is it, this is the end of it all, and said goodbye, and it didn't end. And it seemed like, wow, it, uh, life was, was a gift, newly a gift since then. And then in my 30s once, also, I was in the Strait of Magellan on an adventure, on a boat, trying to go and visit a colony of penguins. Rough winds, anyway, not to give you the whole story, I've talked about it before. It's on other talks in Dharma Seed. So that's another thought, another time I thought, this is it, this, we're not gonna, this boat is not gonna make it. And the, the, the face of the c- captain of this little zodiac boat kind of indicated that we're not going to make it. The winds were pretty, the waves were pretty bad. The water was coming into the boat anyway. And, um, yeah, and I remember, yeah, saying goodbye to it all. It was just a sense of calm, like, okay, I didn't, didn't, I didn't think this was going to be the day that I would die, but okay, here we go. Yeah. 
also there have been so many deaths. <clears throat> For me, I mentioned losing my husband 20 years ago, my dad, my grandmother, and most recently my mother, two months and a little bit ago. So that's still very, very fresh with me, very fresh. And that really was a period, an intense period of of being with with the person that I loved the most in the world and that I was closest to, dearest to me. My first and foremost metta teacher, my mother, really. Um, she modeled unconditional love and we don't choose our parents so I, I feel really lucky to have fallen into this woman's lap. Who, who knew? And I know that not everyone has the same relationship with their parents and their mothers. But just to sh- I wanted to share a little bit with you about this process, about her passing, as, as I mentioned I would um, a couple nights ago. So my mom was 83 years old and, um, and she had had frontotemporal dementia for a few years at that point. Um, and even though she had lost the ability to speak, but she was lucid and clear. She recognized all of us and she knew what was going on around her and she knew what was happening. So an episode happened, an infection, and um, basically she stopped eating and drinking, which is not unusual at, at these stages, at such a stage. And at that point, um, the hospice that she, my mom was a part of said that she probably had only a few days, um, up to a week, because when eating and drinking stops, that's, um, you know, the body can only live about, what, four days to a week without any water. So at that point, I brought my mom to my home and, um, and then she started, so we thought, okay, this is it. We're going to support her. We're going to offer her food and drink if she wants, but also respect her wish that she doesn't want to eat and drink anymore. It, it's t- too painful to swallow. It's too difficult to swallow at that point. The, the, the muscles lose um, the ability to properly um, swallow. So... At that point, when she came, she started to eat and drink a little more. And she was still not feeling well. It was clear that she wasn't really enjoying eating or drinking. But it seemed like maybe she was trying to eat or drink a little bit for our sake. Because we hadn't quite let go. And... For me, I I had told her, Mom, it's okay to go. It's okay to go. And it's important when somebody's dying to give them permission to go. They, I think that's, they need that. But really, I think deep down, I wasn't quite ready. So I had said the words, but I hadn't quite let go of her. I still needed her. I wasn't quite ready to say goodbye. 
So I think she was eating and drinking for our sake. Then there was one night that she had a fever. And being with her, it was clear that she was not comfortable. And at that point, I whispered into her eyes, Mom, you can go. It's okay. I'll be okay. For me, that's the moment I I really let go. I loved her too much. I didn't want her to stay and suffer anymore. And something shifted, like really letting go of her. I remember telling her that, you know, I love you so much, I will miss you, and I will be okay. And her eyes, I remember looking back at me, and it it was, I love you, I don't want to leave you, and I have to go, and it's okay. And that was a moment, it has to be this way, and it's okay, it's really okay. And from that moment on, even more so, I was her ally to respect her wishes. To respect her wishes, especially when well-meaning friends and family wanted to force her to eat and she wouldn't open her mouth. And they insisted, like, no, we offer. And if she closes her mouth, that's, she's communicating. She's speaking very clearly. She says, no, I don't want to eat, I don't want to drink. There's a lot of clarity. And for some family members, some friends, some close friends, you know, death, seeing death was a mistake, it's not okay. It's not okay for anyone to die, no matter how old they are. It's just not okay. And they were so uncomfortable with my mom's death. No, don't go. Don't go. Please eat a little more. Please stay a few more months. Please don't go yet. And part of that, it it seemed, they were so uncomfortable with their own grief, with their own pain, with their own suffering of seeing my mom get weak and not eat. So if we haven't really worked through our own grief and our own relationship with death, our own made peace with our own immortality, it's it's harder to hold accepting space for others. And when we have, all we do is just to offer presence just to offer presence, just to be fully present for whatever is needed. So, with my mom, as I was holding her hand, it seemed like she was holding my hand through the process, through her dying. She was, ho- she was guiding me through her, her death. And I was guiding her through it, too. We were guiding each other. And the sense of peace and ease that she had was really palpable. 
She was not in distress. There's a sense of peace, ease. She smiled every day. Every person who came to say their goodbyes, she smiled and held their hands and she was saying her goodbyes and just a sense of peace and ease. And my task was hold space for her and for the whole family that this is okay. This is natural. This is okay. It's fine. And how can we make this the most peaceful, the most easeful, experience possible? How can we send her off to the other side with love, with devotion, with peace, with ease? Can we do that? Can we come together to do that and support her? And I also knew that my mom was not afraid of death. I had known that. She was a pretty as loving as she was, she was also fearless, really fearless. And she had also had an NDE, a near-death experience, before I had been born. And apparently the story that I heard is that she, um, she had a high fever and basically she dies. And the doctor comes and says that she has died. Whereas she was watching the whole scenario, what was happening from up above and screaming without anyone hearing her, I'm not dead. Don't say I'm dead, I'm here, I'm still alive. And, and she didn't want to die because she had a young child at that point that she really wanted to come back for. And apparently they plunged, they plunged my mom into an ice-cold bath and her temperature dropped and she came back to life. And she always said after that, I'm not afraid of death. It's okay. This is just a machine. She used to call her body, this is a machine. I'm going to leave the machine someday. It's pretty, very, very accepting of it. And after... And, and when she died, I had the privilege to be holding her hand, looking into her eyes when she took her last out-breath. And I was waiting to see if there was going to be another in-breath. And something shifted in her eyes. And I knew there wasn't going to be another in-breath. And there was a palpable sense of peace. Friends and family who would come to my apartment and they would step in. There was something about the space. There was something about the grace, the peace. After she passed, we anointed her body with, with geranium and lavender and friends and family came and we sat around and talked and, and sat with her body for a day, sat with her body at a gathering as if she was a part of it. She never wanted us to mourn. Um, she, we laughed, we cried. She was a great dancer. She had told, taught us some dance moves. So she, we remembered the dance moved and moves and danced and, in her honor and, and cried with joy that she had lived. And, and it's interesting because for me, 
I thought I would be an absolute mess after my mom would pass. I, we were so close, so close. And somehow, I think through the grace of this practice, there was an okayness. Like, this is okay. It's okay. It's, it's a mystery, this transition. And it's no longer mysterious. Someone so dear to me, that I came out of her. I liked how Eugene was talking about that last night. I came out of this being. I am a part of her, and she was a part of me in so many ways. And if she could make this transition, this person who's a part of me, made this transition with ease, I too can do that. Part of me has already done it. It doesn't seem so complicated. It's just, it happens so easily, this passing into the mystery, this passing into whatever it is. And it doesn't have to be. So, it doesn't have to be ah, all the difficult difficulty we associate with it, that it's not okay. It's okay. It's natural. It's a part of life. Death is so much part of life. So, not to say I don't miss her. Of course I miss her. I miss her touch, her gaze, her smell, her smile. And, and it's okay. It's, it, it had to happen exactly the way, the way it happened. The Buddha, after the death of his closest disciples, Sariputta and Mahamogalana, when the two of them passed, he said in the Chunda Sutta, this assembly, O monks, appears indeed empty to me now that Sariputta and Mahamogalana have passed away. Marvelous it is, most wonderful it is, monks, concerning the perfect ones, talking about himself, that when such a despair of disciples, uh, when, when, let me try that again. Marvelous it is, most wonderful it is, monks, concerning the perfect one, which is the name for the Buddha, for himself. That when such a pair of disciples has passed away, there is no grief, no lamentation on the part of the perfect one. And I had read this, I didn't quite understand what the Buddha was saying. And not to say that my experience has been like this completely, but I've had a glimpse. There is... There is an emptiness. There is an emptiness. Life is not the same without my mom. There is an emptiness. And the sense of grief that I expected isn't there. 
had an insight into that. to read something for you. This is from The Sea of Sorrow, an article that showed up in Tricycle magazine in winter of 2014. It's by Rana Kapitznik, and, and it's about the tsunami that hit in 2014 in Thailand. There were shots of bikini-clad corpses on beaches and stunned, and stunned survivors, frantically searching among them for loved ones. Video clips showed demolished homes and hotels, capsized fishing boats, crushed cars, and acres of debris. Seawater still gushed from broken storefront windows and down streets and alleys. The Indian Ocean tsunami turned out to be one of the most devastating natural, disaster in natural disasters in recorded history, leaving an estimated 227,000 dead, 125,000 injured, 45,000 missing, and 1.69 million displaced, over a 22,000 square mile area. In that idyllic tropical setting, the day after Christmas, who would have imagined that this will be the day that I die? The Thai way of grieving, from what I could see, was composed, reflecting, what is known as Jai Yen, a cool heart. Mourners appeared to see death as part of life, not as an injustice or a dreadful mistake, even when it was unexpected or swift. Expressing emotions wasn't an issue for Westerners, who had Jairon, a hot heart. Many felt angry and betrayed by the tsunami and by the experts who didn't detect it in time to transmit warnings. They should have known. How irresponsible, they declared. Parents bitterly blamed themselves for not being able to protect their children from death. I'm a bad parent. It's my fault, they confessed, as if they were personally responsible for the natural disaster. This difference between the two perspectives demonstrates one of the Buddha's key teachings. Our minds are habituated to relate to suffering by resisting it through blame, bitterness, anger, resentment. That resistance is what the Buddha called the second arrow, which follows the first arrow, the direct experience of pain. So much additional suffering comes from believing that things shouldn't be this way, when in fact they are that way. Although tragedy and loss feel personal, they're not. Suffering and loss are built into the human condition. I spoke with one local woman in her late 20s who stood beside three caskets, three stacked caskets, containing her young son, daughter, and husband, 
Pentamada, Pentamachat, she whispered in response to my condolences. This is natural. This is nature. This is natural. This is nature. Let's just sit together for a moment and let the words settle. This is natural. This is nature. Thank you for your kind attention. We have some time for walking and then another sit at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.